Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. Can you believe it? It's Easter. Man, wow. Seems like we just had Christmas. So time goes fast. Um, you know, I was thinking this morning, actually, uh, this, you know, there are some things that you just can't unsee. You know, you see something, you say, I'll never forget that. And I think that seeing someone who had died and then rose again from the dead, I'm thinking that's one of those things you can't unsee. How about it? And, and the, the disciples, the first followers of Jesus, like their lives, you understand, they, they, their lives were dramatically transformed after they saw Jesus risen again. Like that right there is testimony to the resurrection of Christ. That these guys were kind of rough and tough boneheads. They were doubtful. They were faithless. They were fighting. They were divided. They were, I mean, they really were not like the greatest. They weren't really a star bunch. You understand that? And yet they see the resurrected Jesus. Everything changed. They couldn't unsee it. And, and all 12 of those men suffered for that truth. All 12 of them. I mean, Judas killed himself, and then there was a 12th. I know some of you are thinking, some of you Bible scars, like, wait a second. Yeah, Judas killed himself, he did. But then there was another that they added, and all those first followers of Jesus died because of what they had seen, and they couldn't unsee it. Amazing, isn't it? So I'm really glad that you're here with us today because it's Easter and we get to celebrate that together. It's a big day for us. But also, like if you're a new person to faith or maybe you're not even new to Jesus, you're, you're still kicking the tires, you're not even, maybe you're skeptical even about Jesus or maybe it's the first time you've been in church for a long time, like this is a really good day because as a church we've been studying the the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and today we're literally in the last couple of sentences of the last book of the Bible. So we're like looking at the end of the Bible today, and sometimes when you're reading a book, I don't know if you cheat at all, but you go to the end, or you know, do you ever do that? Anybody do that? You try to find how it's going to end? Well, this morning, you are in luck because we're looking at how it ends, and it is an awesome awesome ending because it's actually not an ending at all. It's a new beginning. So it, it just leads to a sequel, which is way better and way more glorious and way more breathtaking than the first round at all. You ever notice how sequels are usually not as great as the first one? In this case, the sequel blows the first one right out of the water. So I can't wait to get into it. Revelation, turn in your Bibles, the very last page, probably in your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. So this last week, maybe you heard, but Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter for a measly $43 billion. That's absolutely insane, if you think about it. When you think Twitter doesn't even make nothing. 
Like, they're just a glorified computer program. $43 billion is what he wants to pay for them. Because he thinks that he can transform them and turn them into a space for open dialogue and free speech. He's a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, he says. Which, great, more power to him. But it brings up a question to me, and that's this. It's a far more serious question. If it costs $43 billion to fix Twitter, what does it cost to fix any real problem? that plagues our world today. Like 43 billion for Twitter, what's it cost to stop war? What's it cost to solve famine and hunger? Like what's it cost to stop human trafficking? You know, what's it cost to fix any like serious problem in the world? If it costs that much to fix a computer program. And then let's not even just think out there for all those people out there, but let's get personal. How about the things that you struggle with, that you know you wrestle with, and you know they're not right, like you you wrestle with the dissonance in your own soul. You know it's not right. The the woman that, that you have impure thoughts towards that you work with, or the unforgiveness that you hold against your husband for that thing he did 20 years ago, or the apathy that you feel in raising your own children because it's just... They've gotten too crazy and it's all out of hand and so you just take your hand off the wheel, you give up. Or, or the fear of death that you wrestle with or the fear of losing money that you deal with. Like, like what does it take? If it costs 43, bucks to, $43 billion to fix Twitter, what would it cost to fix me? And is there any hope of it happening? Thankfully, the Bible has an answer. Thankfully, the Bible gives us the story, the history, actually, of what God, the creator of the universe, has been doing since before the beginning of time to address that very thing in our lives. The Bible doesn't tell all history, right? There's a lot of things that are not included in the Bible that happened in the world history. But the Bible does tell us a very specific history. It's redemptive history. It's literally the working of God throughout actual historical events to bring about salvation, to bring about the answer to you and me. And the Bible tells us a very clear message. It tells us that God created us. It tells us that he loves what he created. He loves us. It tells us the truth about ourselves, that you and I wandered from God, that we rebelled against God. Scripture says that all of us have sinned. That's what that means. All of us have. And we've gone our own way. It says that we're even like sheep, the Bible says. Can you, can you, like, you like that? How about that? The Bible compares us to sheep. You've wandered. You've gone astray, it tells us. This is the human condition. And it tells us that war and hunger and division and anxiety and corruption and all that stuff, like that's actually not God's plan for us. That's here as a direct result of our decision to walk away from God. Life, as, life with God as king actually works perfectly. But when you and I choose to become our own king and our own queen, self-centeredness has mucked up the whole works. See? And if you think about it, self-centeredness is actually the root of every one of these problems that we face today. It all comes back to that. And so the question for us is... Will I trust God 
Will I let him be king of my life? Because Jesus is the only one who can actually rule me without ruining me. Even if I try to rule myself, I ruin me. And everything that I attempt to do to fix it just makes it worse. So I come back to my initial question. If it costs $43 billion to fix Twitter, what does it cost to fix us? I'd prefer to not think about it because I think we all sort of know in our knowers that it's impossible to do it. And so you know what we do? We get ourselves busy. We busy ourselves tackling smaller problems and issues by, by writing checks, reading books, protesting, working harder, or just simply blaming somebody else. Like we, we come up with all these other ways to try to fix the smaller problems, but all the while we know we have a God-sized problem that only God can fix. And like in our world, have you ever noticed like there's this huge elephant in the room that everybody knows is there, but nobody seems to really want to talk about it. We do our best to ignore it. We do our best to try to fix the easier problems, but we already know that one's still there. We all know it. And here's the shocking truth of the Bible. It's this. Our problem was so bad that the only way to solve it was for God to come to earth and die. And when you think that your problem was that big, that your sin is that big, that it actually requires the death of God, you realize how ludicrous it is that you can just be a good person and fix it. And this is the stunning invitation of the Bible. You ready? The Bible invites us. The invitation is this. Yes, the Bible's honest. Yes, my sin was that bad that God had to die to fix it. Yes, but he did it willingly because he loves me. He did it willingly because he loves me. And he would rather come to hell here for me than stay in heaven without me. And so he came to me, and if I would just humble myself before him, humble myself before him, and confess my sin to him, admit it, I need him, I'm a sinner, admit it, he promises to forgive me, he promises to restore me, to cleanse me, he promises to bring me into an intimate relationship with himself where I get to be his and he's mine and this, my friend, is the message of the Bible. And this is what we celebrate really at Easter, that Jesus did the ultimate act to make us right with God. And now, now the rest is up to you and me. Will I believe it? Will I trust it? Will I, will I humble myself before him and let him save me? Will I? I hope you do today. And so today at Easter, we come to these final words in the Bible, Revelation 22, and literally right here, like everything in the Bible, this whole message, it all just comes right to the point, right to a climax, right here. And so I'm going to start with verse 7, Revelation 22, verse 7 to 21, and Jesus is speaking right off, and he says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Now I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. 
I love that. It's the second time that happened in Revelation. John was so overwhelmed by an angel that he fell down to worship it, and the angel had to correct him. I love that. Then the angel told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. We'll explain that in a second. Look, Jesus says, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll, that person um, will, uh, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So you notice three times in this passage, Jesus says what? I am coming soon, he says. I am coming soon. What does that mean for us? Well, there's a couple of things that it means. And first is this. It means that Jesus wants to be with us. He's coming to us. So Jesus wants to be with us. For John chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus said this uh, actually at the Last Supper. He says to the disciples, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Do you hear the intimacy in that? Do you hear the relationship in that? Jesus wants us to be with him. That's stunning to me. Why is Jesus returning? Because he wants to actually spend forever with me. Wrap your mind around that. So I don't even know that I want to spend forever with me. There's a lot of days. <laughs> and yet Jesus goes, I want to spend forever with you all right, Lord. You know, our family does this thing. Maybe your family does it too. Whenever we're together and then we have to say goodbye because uh, we're, we're, our family's not, we don't all live in the same area. And admittedly, there are times that Karis and I are jealous of that, that families that get to all live in the same area. That's great. I'm sure some of you are thinking, oh, no, it's not as great as you think it is. But I'm sure there's downsides to that, too. But when our family gets together and we all, you know, we've had a good time and now it's time to say goodbye, 
we usually gather around and we're hugging and we're kissing and all those final things. And we stop and we pray. We always pray for whoever's leaving to have a good trip and we pray God's blessing on them and that sort of thing. And then one of the other things that we always do is we always talk about when we're going to see each other next. It's always, okay, so Easter's coming. I get, we'll see you at Easter. Karis and I are looking forward to it. We're going to, get to go, going to get to see some of our kids this week. That's going to be fun. And I guarantee you when we go to say goodbye, it'll be, all right, so I guess the next time we see it, it'll be like probably, what, this summer? We're going to, you know, we make a plan to see each other again. There's something about the promise of seeing one another again that kind of softens the blow of the goodbye. Have you noticed that? And this is what Jesus does. Isn't this sweet? Jesus goes, yes, I'm going, but I am coming back to be with you. Yes, there will come a day when we will be together forever. I am coming soon, he says. It's a bit sad to come to the end of Revelation, to come to the end of the Bible, but Jesus gives us the hope that he will return soon and he and I will be together again. The second thing it also means is this. It also means that our scars have value. Our scars, the things that hurt us. You think through this with me a little bit. You know those wounds that you have, that we all have. Some of them are self-inflicted, right? And some of them have been inflicted on us by others, and we've certainly done our share of wounding others. That's human nature, isn't it? But we all have those things, don't we? One of the cool things about Jesus rising from the dead and about the promise of Jesus returning is that he redeems those things. Those, I might be embarrassed about those things, maybe even ashamed. Some of us might struggle with those things. But Jesus has a way of actually healing them and then turning them around and using those very things to bring healing to others. So only Jesus can do that. That's amazing. His return means that he's not helping me to ex escape all my troubles and to ignore all my problems. But rather, his return means that he's entering into my life and he's somehow taking those ugly things and doing something beautiful with them. You know, one of the first things that Jesus did after his resurrection was to show his scars to his disciples? Interesting, isn't it? Why would he do that? See, we like to think of our future as being a future without scars. But what if our future is not without scars? What if our future is with redeemed scars? What if that's what our future is? I think it is. Because you know, you know what a redeemed scar says? A redeemed scar says, I, I once was this, but do you see what Jesus did? That's Jesus right there. He did that. He, he healed that. See that scar? That scar means that he healed it. And, and every, every one is an opportunity to boast in his goodness and his grace and his power to heal. You see what he did? And you know what? Not only did he heal that, but he's actually you should have seen some of the cool stuff Jesus did with that. <laughs> That's the power of a resurrected Lord. So my scars, my scars, man, they've got value. They're a reminder of 
battle spot. They're a reminder of a victory that was won. They're medals of honor, really. And they're, and they're, and they're a place where Jesus can be praised and magnified because he shared the victory with me. Isn't that cool? The third thing, his return, his resurrection and his return means is it also means that I have strength to endure. The hope of reunion gets us through the dark days. It really does. How many times have you comforted yourself, Christian friend, with, yeah, I know it's bad, but Jesus is coming. I know I've said that a lot the last couple of years. Yeah, Jesus is coming. Yep, you get, you get up, you know, when you get upset, you start to get, you start to go down that rabbit hole. You say, okay, yep, but Jesus is coming. I know it. He's coming. He's coming. It gives us strength to endure. Now, I know some of you are skeptical of this. Some of you think this is just pie in the sky, mumbo jumbo. But let's stick with me for a second. I know you thinking, wait a second, Jesus promised 2,000 years ago that I, would, I am coming soon. And it's been 2,000 years. That's not exactly my definition of soon. How about it? Nor yours, I'm sure. So you say, well, if he's coming soon, what's to say that he's not going to wait another 2,000 years? Hey, that's a legit question, and I won't take that from you. But I'll say this, consider this. It means that we have 2,000 years of history, which is enough to know that this hope can offer serious strength to the people of God. This hope, remember when John wrote Revelation, he wrote it under the shadow of the Roman Empire, the most oppressive empire probably in history. And so he's writing this under that shadow. And let me ask you today, where is the Roman Empire today? And where are the people of God? Right here. See. Who has the power to endure? <laughs> not the Roman Empire. Not the oppressor. Not the dictator. Not the, you know, the people of God. The people of God who, when they face, when they face trials, when we face trials, when we face dark days, we face trouble, we have this hope that, that can pull us through that that nobody else has. And here we are to this day. Where are the people of God? Right here, hoping for the return of Christ. Do you see how powerful that is? I can't think of any other hope that's been tested so much and yet has lasted so long. That's a testimony to its power. So this is a hope that's unlike any other. You know, the best the world can do is hope that circumstances change. They just hope that things change. But experience says that things really aren't changing for the better, are they? I don't know. I, you know I'm, I guess I'm old enough to begin saying that things aren't as good as they were when I was young. And I, I know my parents have said the same thing. They're not as good as when they were young. And, and our kids are in their 20s, and they're already starting to say it. It tells me things aren't getting better. They're just getting worse. I, I love people that call themselves progressive. I'm like, uh, as though somehow you're getting better. I don't know. You can't help but notice we're not. Listen, I ain't, I ain't poking fun at you. I'm not trying to bring you down or hate on you. I'm just suggesting that there's a better hope than merely hoping things change. 
And Revelation presents a different picture. It presents not a picture of better circumstances. In fact, the Bible and the book of Revelation are pretty honest about the fact that it's hell on earth sometimes. It is really bad at times. So there's, there's no like cupcakes and butterflies you know, in the Bible. That's not at all what this is. But it does present a picture of a person who has conquered sin, who defeated death, who's coming back, and he's sharing that victory with us. And if I place my hope in him, I can find strength to pull through anything. That's what it presents. In Revelation, we see Jesus. I love, haven't you loved that in our study of Revelation? Like Jesus, you know, I was just thinking that even this morning as we were worshiping, like, Jesus, you are so much bigger than I ever thought. And, and maybe it's, the, maybe it's the, the downside of the fact that Jesus became flesh, because we tend to think of him as our buddy-buddy. You know, we, we, he's so relatable because he's human, isn't he? But yet, you look in Revelation and you see, oh, no, he's the judge, like, he's, he's commanding angels, and they're dumping out bowls of wrath, and he's got this tattoo, faithful and true, and he commands the armies of heaven. Like, he's kick-butt Jesus in Revelation, and, and, and you don't mess with him. That's, I love the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. He, he, it takes me to a whole nother place. He's not just my buddy. He is the almighty God of the universe, and he's worthy of my worship and worthy of my obedience and worthy of my sacrifice. He's worthy of everything that I would give to him because of his greatness and who he is. See, that's who he is. Whoa. And if I lift my eyes to him, that will pull me through any dark day. Fourth, it means this. I don't even know my numbers. There we go. Fourth, it's this. It means that you and I have a job to do. The return of Christ means we've got some work to do. Jesus is coming soon. There's going to be a party, and um, we need to get busy delivering the invitations. That's what we see also here in Revelation 22. You see it in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and they're inviting anybody to come get a drink who's thirsty, aren't they? Everybody come to the water. Okay, there's some really cool stuff in that one statement. The spirit and the bride say, come, see if I can do it justice. It's times like this, I wish I was smarter. But let's see if we can do this justice. Okay, so when the spirit and the bride say, come, just walk with me for a moment, real quick. How does the Bible begin? Genesis chapter 1. At the very first page of the Bible, we see God creating, don't we? And does anybody know how, I think it's the first, second verse of the Bible, we see the Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. Is that ringing any bells for you? In the very first couple of verses of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep, and He's out of this chaos, He's bringing order, and He begins to bring order and form to the world. And this is the story in, Revel in Genesis chapter 1. Now we come to the last page of the Bible, follow, and it's the Spirit and the Bride saying, come, inviting the thirsty to the water, 
And the Spirit and the bride are inviting the thirsty to enter the new heaven, the new earth. There's a new creation. All things are new. The old is gone. See the connection? Somehow, we've gone from the Spirit working alone to bring order out of the chaos in Genesis chapter 1. And now at the end of Scripture, it's the Spirit working with you and me to bring reorder, to bring the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation. We have the, we have the privilege of partnering with God himself to invite the world, to invite the thirsty of the world to come and enjoy this freedom and this healing and this restoration and this new life that we get to experience. This is amazing. Do you understand what it means to be a Christian, you don't just get free fire insurance. Like that's, it's so much bigger than that. You've been invited to partner with God in the formation of a new heaven and a new earth. You get to reign with Christ. We saw that last Sunday. You're part of his beloved bride, and the world is dying to have what you have. See, they think religion is the answer, and it isn't. They think that like a better government is the answer, and it isn't. Our message to the world is, listen, in Christ, all things are made new, and it's free. It's free. And we make the invitation to anybody. It's free. You can have this too. Jesus' return means that you and I have a job to do. It means that we've been given a stack of invitations, and we have the honor of delivering them to the world. The same idea is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul, this is where he's talking about the resurrection and, and the future and the return of Christ. And how does he end his whole thing? Uh, and I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually an excellent chapter on what happens to the body when we die and what does our resurrected body look like. It's really a great chapter. And he comes to the end of all of that and what's the conclusion? The Apostle Paul's conclusion is, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, when I know, when I know that my future is secured, when, I mean, Jesus defeated death. So, like, death's been taken off the table for you and me. You realize? Like, okay, kill me. Well, whatever, I go to heaven, great. You know what I mean? Like, like literally, death has been removed from the equation. And, and so now, what threatens you? Nothing. Nothing. People of God, you have every reason to be bold, to be courageous, to be daring, to take risks, to give everything you've got to the cause of Christ because you're literally victorious. You can't lose. And then number five, the return, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus, it means that lastly, his return means I have a choice. 
of a big choice. And this is expressed in verses 10 and 11. Remember we read that? It's kind of a weird phrase. Let those who are wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Like, that's kind of weird, isn't it? You think, what's he saying in that? I, honestly, what John is saying is this. It's a, just a different way of saying this. He's saying that the time is short and you need to make a choice. Essentially, that's what it is. He, he's not saying, if you're vile, just go ahead and keep being vile. I guess not what he's saying. He's saying that time is running out, and when the clock does count down to zero, you will not be able to choose anymore. You will not be able to change anymore. So now is the time to choose in the final seconds of the clock. So the time is running out. Now is the time to choose, see. What are you going to do about it before that clock runs out? So my friend, you have a choice this Easter. Which will you choose? Isn't it something? The Bible doesn't offer you and me a great escape, does it? That's one of the other things I've really captured out of this. You know, I admit, I'll admit, as a Christian, I mean, I grew up in church my whole life. And, and I'll admit, you know, there's been times I'm like, Jesus, just get me out of here. Just get me out of here, Lord. And I've been looking forward to the return of Jesus because that meant that I get to escape. Can I be honest? But I, I'm reading this. I don't see escapism anywhere in here. I don't. And, and then just even yesterday, I was praying about this. And you know what I felt the Lord tell me? He was like, yeah, um, I actually love the world more than you do. I said, oh, you're right, Lord. All I want to do is get out of here, and you're returning to it. Hmm. Yeah, he actually loves the world more than you do. I do. You see, so the message of God is not about getting us out of the fight. It's about getting us back into the fight by removing the threat of death from the equation. I hold in my hand an invitation to any thirsty one telling them where they can find help, hope, and healing. And Jesus rose again from the dead, and he's coming soon, which means that death is not a problem anymore. So even if I die in the process, eh, death is temporary and I win anyway. You know, back to my original illustration about, it, about Mr. Musk. Can you imagine like how cool that would be to be able to write a $43 billion check and still have money left over? <laughs> right. right. The guy's got $300 billion. Like his tithe is $30 billion. Where's Marv, the treasurer? He would love to count that one, wouldn't you, Marv? Yeah, $30 billion right there. Right? But you know what? Do you realize that spiritually speaking, that is you? Do you realize, spiritually speaking, you can write check after check after check after check after check after check and never run out? Do you understand that God has removed death out of the equation for you, child of God? Which means you can absolutely just blow the bank because there's more. The old is gone. All things are made new. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So what holds you back? from giving everything you have to the cause of Christ. What is holding you back? So friend, the Bible story can also become your story. God made you to love him. 
but he, but, he, but he lost you. That's the message of the Bible. Not he didn't lose us like he had a mistake, but I mean, we ran. He lost us. But the Bible tells us that Jesus died to get us back, and he rose again to eliminate every barrier standing between you and him. Literally, every barrier is erased. And now he invites you to be forgiven. He invites you to enter in. He invites you to give him your sin. Wrap your mind around that one. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. He invites you to walk with him. He invites you to recreate with him. And he's coming soon, which means you, can, you don't have much time to decide. So why not? I'm going to ask you this question. Can you think of one good reason why you would not accept Jesus' invitation right now. And this applies to, to some of us for salvation. Some of you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior. You're still trying to work your own way to heaven. You're trying to work out your own plan. And, and, and all it's doing is it's ruining your marriage, it's ruining your family, it's ruining your life. It's just bringing ruin all through your life, and you see it. But you keep trying. To, to, to make your own way to figure it out. Can you think of one good reason why you wouldn't? Just stop that and trust Jesus. Because you see what he's done? And then for you, child of God, you've already given your life to Jesus, but you're living in fear, and the truth is your life looks just like everybody else's life. They don't see faith, they don't, they don't see daring, they don't see boldness or courage in your life. And I'm saying, can you think of one good reason? One good reason why you wouldn't just throw everything to the wind and just trust Jesus with all you've got. Take a step of faith. He defeated death. He's taken that off the table. There's no reason to hold back in pursuing Christ. There's no reason to hold back in serving this dying world and making the invitation to come for a free drink. No, there's no reason to hold back. So I just want to ask you right now to bow your head with me and let's pray this together as we close, okay? Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for loving me even when I did not love you. Please forgive me for the sins that I've committed and for the things I should have done but did not do. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to pay for my sins. I now receive you as my Savior and Lord. Please cleanse me and come into my life. Please give me the Holy Spirit to empower me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.